Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody. Thank you so much for sharing your evening with us. We so appreciate it. And if you enjoy the show and the archives, please remember to go to our YouTube channel and subscribe to us so that you'll be able to know when all of our super shows are coming on the air. want to thank Ken Quiethawk for that amazing intro. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. He and his wife have an amazing website. And they are carrying on a tradition that is centuries, probably longer than that, old, of relating history and theology through telling of stories. If you haven't heard any of these native stories, you should really take a, take a, take a, take a period of time and go on and listen to some of their recordings. They are phenomenal. And yeah, I think it's important for the kids to learn how history used to be related before there were textbooks. Really a great idea to know your history a little bit better than school seems to be teaching the kids these days. Mark has an amazing show lined up for you. He has two phenomenal people. And as always, I am intrigued by both of them. I think they're spectacular, and I know you will too, because they bring information on areas that, again, aren't covered by the general whatever. So um, sit back and be prepared to be totally entertained and educated at the same time, which is something the TV can't tell you. Mark, how are you doing tonight? I'm fine. How are you? I am too. I'm very fine. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, it's nice to uh, be back after just doing some summer stuff last week. Uh, But we scheduled a special show for this Sunday 10 to midnight Eastern time to make up for the vacation. So, you know, you're still averaging a show a week. So, you know, by the time we actually get to the one year anniversary, uh, we should have our 52 shows on our playlist. Very impressive. And they've been great shows too. You've brought wonderful people to the show and I have thoroughly Mm -hmm. enjoyed them. They they have been yeah. amazing guests. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I, um, it's it, it, it's been a really uh, terrific uh, eleven months. <laughs> and but, counting. Um, yeah, and and, um, and I think uh, tonight's just going to be a continuation of the terrificness. Uh, and <laughs> Kat Hobson is our first hour guest. Uh, she she is the voice of the prestigious Fate Magazine Radio and the owner of WBHM-DB Paranormal Talk Radio. And she's a longtime UFO researcher and will be presenting at a couple of esteemed UFO conferences this fall. So I'd be intrigued to hear more about that shortly. So, uh, hi, Kat. Welcome to Nightlight. Hello there. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah, we're, uh, I think tonight there's another one of those shows where, um, we have, you know, some colleagues making their, their debuts here with us and it's just just really enjoyable meeting so many new people and having them come on here you know we didn't even have to pay you we wanted to do it and (laughs) it's it's just fun getting uh, you know People you know you know we're working with and just bring them on and uh, learn from each other. So, uh, um, you know, Fate Magazine has a really long legacy, and starting before, um, yeah, the late night talk radio weird stuff. You know, started happening. Uh, it, it, you know, so, so you're involved with this magazine that I don't. Uh, what, what should we uh, say? It, you know, really kind of got the ball rolling, or you know, pave, paved the way for the, the rest of us who are interested in wanting to understand the unexplained. Well, absolutely. We have now been in publication 71 years. That's a lot of strange and unknown to have covered. So as the the little blurbs say, it's really true. Six decades before The Walking Dead or Paranormal Witness or Coast to Coast AM, mm-hmm. the, the blogs, the books, the movies that all wound up captivating audiences with true tales of the paranormal, there was fate. And it's the first of its kind publication. It's been always dedicated to in-depth coverage of mysterious and unexplained phenomenon. It is. It hasn't always been the the small journal that started that way and then went to the regular size magazine and then was pulled back. But it's really a neat thing. People that I talk to 
whether they're a guest on my show or I run into them at a conference or wherever, they're just very excited because either they grew up reading fate or they've had articles appear in fate or, you know, they shared that experience with grandparents or, you know, family members. I get so excited when my guests get so excited to be coming on with me. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, you, yeah, you're just keeping the legacy alive. I am. Phyllis, our editor, is um, fantastic, and I just absolutely love her. She called me one afternoon and said, "You know, I have been thinking about it, and I think that you're supposed to be, you know, the voice of fate." And I thought, well, the online voice of Fate magazine is pretty amazing. I have friends who have filled that role in the past, one of whom is Chase Klotsky. And Mm -hmm. that's actually how she and I met. Well, she is, but she's a great woman. So, you know, she's been my friend a lot longer than she's been a big name. And it was really neat. We met at Sloss Furnace. She was doing a live feed show at loss and I was doing an event there and we just kind of clicked I had no idea that she was doing fate radio when we were there we were just talking about uh, other things and then yeah we we got to know each other pretty well we're still friends I'm so looking forward to seeing her in Phoenix at the International UFO Congress Next weekend, uh, well, not next weekend, the weekend of August 8th, that um, she's actually the first speaker out of the box after the welcomes and how are you. So I figured she was worth it enough that I flew in a day early. I'm flying in a day early just to hear her speak. But it's going to be awesome. But, yeah, we've had some, some great hosts, and we've had a couple that, you know, left abruptly, and that's okay. But I love the magazine. You know, we've it was started in 1948 by Clark Publishing, and it was it's just amazing. You know, Ray Palmer was the editor of Amazing Stories magazine, and Curtis Fuller, who was an editor, you know, on his own, came together and co-founded this magazine. And the first first edition featured an article by Kenneth Arnold who recounted his 1947 UFO encounter. Hmm. How cool is that? That's the guy that started it, it, the modern UFO era. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll have to look up the passage, but... Uh, I'll, I'll 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 read that in just just a minute, but yeah, you know, so fate's been around for over seventy years now. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know you're only uh, twenty nine, so you, you know you haven't been there that <laughs> reading it that long. But, but, but no, I haven't. What, uh, what did 
you know, how how did you grow up that got you so interested in the unexplained? Well, I'm I'm Southern. I know that shocks people who are listening to us, right? But when I've always had the ability to like know something was going to happen before it did or really strong deja vu when I would recognize situations to the level of knowing that if I did A, this would happen. And, you know, if I liked that, then that was fine. But if I didn't, I would choose, you know, alternate B. This actually saved my life a few times. And I thought this is, I mean, at first I thought it was normal. I thought everyone did that. And I became part of a study because of the frequency of the occurrences and come to find out not everybody does that. So I thought, well, am I a freak of nature? Is this a good thing? It you know, seems good to me because it has saved me. And I started researching it myself. And um, I just started being interested in everything that was a little off kilter. You know, if, if it's anomalous, it fascinates me. I want to find out why it's there. And I've done another radio show for five years. Well, in November, it will be five years. And so it's called Paranormal Experienced, and I started researching the paranormal. I it, it fascinated me. I knew that you know, I'm, there's a spiritual aspect to the things that I find sometimes, and it's hard to reconcile that to the science that you need to go into UFOlogy with. But I was fortunate enough to listen to Eric Von Donneken so many times last summer. It was a blessing. And every time that he would speak, people would ask him, you know, well, if the aliens were here and if this was happening, and he said, well, A, the you know, chariots of the gods has a question mark at the end of it. It's it's a search. And B, no matter what I've seen, I've never lost my God. Because no matter how many different people come here or there are in the universe, everything and everyone was created. They didn't just come from nothing. So, you know, no matter how many universes there are or how many you know, life-bearing planets there are, there's still a creator. And that's my God. So that was a very refreshing and unexpected, I will say, to me, comment. And I just thought he was the bee's knees. I enjoyed hearing him speak so much and had the chance to speak with him a bit, too. But if someone that... Eric is a very uh, kind man, and from my uh, couple days interaction with him, uh, you know, he he was uh, very interested in 
meeting with people, hearing their points of view, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just talking with them, uh, you know, ha- how they were affected, explained uh, his um, thoughts with them as well. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with you about your assessment of him. I think I think he's uh, just uh, if you're going to work in um, you know, some of the UFO spirituality type uh, information, I, yeah, I think he does exemplify a a uh, blend of both subjects, and, and he. He just seems to be um, a person who shows compassion to others. Yes. Yes, he does. And and, and um, I did find that passage. I actually had the book here. I was uh, doing some prep for Steve for the next hour, but um, I know this – uh, John Keel was writing th- this passage in the 60s uh, uh, and you, know, you, you noted uh, fate was uh, started in, in the, um, the late 40s but yes. you know, there's a little time, time difference but uh, it, what John wrote shows a link between the two dates and uh, in the uh, Mothman Prophecies on page 137, he writes, the UFO waves of the 1960s were accompanied by the occult explosion. Um, but, yeah, there, yeah, there does seem to be a connection from the uh, 1940s and you know, some of these uh, sightings in the 60s, and you know, in this example, uh, Keel was writing about uh, in the Point Pleasant, West Virginia area where uh, mm-hmm. the Mothman was, and you know, it, it, it's just continued to this day. Well, and you know, uh, Eric uh, continued it in what uh, 1968, 69 with the publication of Chariots of the Gods. So. I think that what you're discussing shows a uh, almost like a uh, uninterrupted 20-year span of span of a- accurate observations of this phenomenon. I agree, and. What's amazing is that there were such vast and varied examples of, of anomalous phenomenon from you know, Mothman and the various other monsters that have shown up in different places to, you know, because we were talking about the Flatwoods monster, which was also mm-hmm. in that area. They're not very mm-hmm. far apart. So, you know, it's really something else. And you go up and you have, you know, the anomalous 
marine monsters, which fascinate me too because I'm a water person, then you, know, then you have the land-based monsters, which I think Mothman would come under, as well as Bigfoot, Sasquatch, whatever region you're in and what you call them. But it's been being reported for forever. A lot of it's been being reported for centuries. And it's really hard to toss out the baby with the bathwater when you're going back for hundreds of years with documentation and you know tales of experiences that match in you know the areas that match in the behaviors that match in the appearances all the way down from then to now you know it's to me that's fascinating especially before there was mass media before people you know i mean even newspaper publications that went across the country and such before the wire services. All of this was Mm -hmm. happening then too. So it's not just a social media phenomenon. It's been going on forever. I find that fascinating. Yeah, And since you just brought up uh, mass media and the water monsters, it's Kind of take a slight detour, but yeah, still sticking with um, the the unexplained. But it, you know, in the Book of Job, you get that uh, like uh, like aquatic cryptid living in the uh, like Jordan River, mm-hmm. and had to. Uh, it's described as you know, tail as thick as the uh, cedars of Lebanon. Um, you know, we aren't sure exactly what kind of creature is being discussed in that passage. Um, but, you know, the Bible does present a cryptid, and uh, presented a the, cyclops too. Okay, and a giant. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We got you know, several examples of giants, but you know, we do, uh, you know, yeah, the giants are yeah, discussed later in. Uh, the book of Genesis, uh, but you, know, you really don't get you know, Nessie and Mothman and Bigfoot in those like in the list of all the animals that are created at the uh, beginning of uh, Genesis. Uh, it doesn't mean that. Um, yeah, uh, you know, there's one enough room. You know, it doesn't mean they weren't ever created. It just, you know, they just weren't mentioned uh, early on. But do do, do you think that uh, like those 
or what's now cryptids to us were created way back at at, at the beginning and you know it might have been a little bit more uh prevalent then uh and we're just rediscovering them now or they or do you think that they're just uh appearing now uh for some reason to teach us a lesson i think they're appearing now because we're destroying their habitat and they are being caught out more often than they would have been because we are prolific at destroying environments we go through the amazon rainforests and just clear cut we go through the southern pine forests and just clear cut for pulpwood. We, you know, are building houses in places that probably shouldn't be supporting structured neighborhoods like that. <laughs> I mean, you know, hmm. we build places. You can you can look at California and the fire zones. You know, people are living where, you know, there's going to be fires. It's it's a given. They're tender dry. Um, one good bolt of lightning and everything is going to go. Right. And not singling out California, but it's a, a strong example of, you know, mm-hmm. building your house That's on true. the rock and not the yeah. sand kind of a thing. Oh, so, a big fire last year. It's, you know, that was there, just documented. There's a big fire almost every year. Mm-hmm. At some point, whether, at some point along that coast, there's going to be, you know, it wasn't long ago that it was in Malibu, just at the other end of the coastline. So it's, it is something that happens with alarming regularity and such great loss of life, as well as property. The life is what matters. And it's very concerning that, you know, I understand wanting a view. I, I want a view. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I don't want to be putting myself or my family in jeopardy to have it. And I think that it's irresponsible development that is kind of making these creatures come out or be seen when, you know, decades ago you just knew they were there. People knew they were there, but they didn't, you know, it was kind of a live and let live thing. And since since we are uh, destroying environments, um, and uh, maybe we we are finding more evidence of Bigfoot, uh, have any of your guests or do you have a theory about? Okay, what are we learning from you know from Bigfoot? Are they telling us something about uh, the environment? Well, I don't. I don't think I'm right. The right person to put words in you know Bigfoot's mouth at all because I I have not encountered one personally. But I do know that if you watch the other 
animals of the forests and such as that. I live in a metropolitan area. I was on my way home and driving up the hill towards my street, and I thought it was a deer crossing in front of me, and I looked over, and it was a it looked very sick, but it was a coyote, which is unusual. They don't come I have a mountain of woods between me and another area for them to come out of the woods in the daytime. I've never seen that here, and I've lived here for 25, 30 years. So that was disconcerting. But that is another animal that we are driving into what is for them a dangerous environment. If somebody were to see him, then they would call animal control or shoot him or whatever, and all he was was hungry because he was having to come out during the daytime, which is not their normal hunting time. And that was just bizarre. And he, as I said, he did not look healthy. And, you know, my heart kind of went out to him because it was, it was terrible for him. He got seen by a human. That's not supposed to happen in his world. Well, I understand. It, 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 since you're uh, in Alabama, um, and you know, there's such a rich Southern literary legacy, I, I, I just wondered. Uh, it, it, have you encountered anything about uh, ghosts or uh, paranormal uh, sightings, hauntings uh, associated with uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda or uh, William Faulkner? Uh, you know, James Dick Dickey wrote uh, Deliverant. Is is there any? I I I just have an interest in in, in that subject. I, I just in historic hauntings based, or was well, perhaps the you know, literature on, on, based on something? Yeah, I, I was just want just just wondered um, if if you heard anything about that. I just, well, I have not, and I have been okay. – I actually am a paranormal investigator, and mm-hmm. I've, um, I have opted to go toward the research side now, and that's what, um, that's what this new study group that I've put together with my associate, Frank Lee, is about. But I have – I have – got to tell you that down here, you know, Faulkner, I believe, was Kentucky, and I'm I'm just always amazed. We had a woman here who most of us looked up to, and if I could be the raconteur that she was, I would be thrilled. Her name was Catherine Tucker Wyndham, and she wrote a series of books the first of which that I read was 13 Southern Ghosts. 
Then she wrote 13 Alabama ghosts, and then she went around the southeast. But in the 13 southern ghosts, I have been to the places that she wrote about. And when I was in sixth grade, she actually came and spoke at my school. And she was brilliant, and she was the classic caricature of a southern woman. It was the the very southern voice, the very you know put together with the hat and that stuff. And she had her own ghost that resided in her home, and she called him Jeffrey, and he went everywhere with her. He came to my school, which was. An interesting thing when you're in sixth grade and, you know, this lady that you've been reading for, you know, four or five years is sitting there and she has the ghost that you thought would be great to meet right there with her. (laughs) Is it any wonder so many of us are fascinated by the paranormal down here, right? But that is someone, you know, she wrote about the Myrtles, which is in Louisiana. She wrote about um, the library that was in the town I lived in when I I was able to see her. It's the library in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where so much happened. There's a Freedman House. There's there's just all kinds of places, and it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I had yeah, never met a was... professional author before, and then she was telling, I I knew all of her stories, so. It was neat. So that is someone whose paranormal, um, whose literary characters and experiences I have experienced as paranormal. I I, I just uh, had a flash going through my mind about the uh, some of the southern authors. I just wondered about that. But yeah, there are uh, like the Myrtles. Yeah, those so some of those uh, you know, plantations. Uh, you, you get you know, you know kind of kind of going to get get into maybe contrasting uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some of the southern uh, battlefields versus. Oh my gosh! Yes. Uh, get get. Gettysburg, where you just came back from, uh, it's, it's just kind of yeah, you're going back and forth between both uh, regions of the country, and I'm just wondering, it, you know, are you picking up any differences? Just seeing, uh, uh, just uh, uh, the 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 afterlife is the same in in both regions. You know, I'm just. Uh, mm-hmm. Just kind of throwing mm-hmm. out some questions of, 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 about your experiences in two uh, widely divergent regions. Well, that is actually a fantastic question because I was very surprised the first time I went to Gettysburg. I was anticipating people being fearful or you know, trying to build up their their machismo, I guess, to to go into battle to be able to actually get up that morning and go fight. Because all of Gettysburg was a battlefield, not just 
the marked battlefields. People were were fighting through the streets. Everything was really terrible. But I, when I first went there for this Gettysburg Battlefield Bash, which is a great fundraiser for Pennsylvania Wounded Warriors, I was shocked because I didn't feel fear. I didn't feel anger. What I felt was a quiet resolution because these mm. people, if they ran, they would be shot or hung as deserters. If they fought, the odds of surviving the day were slim and none. So they had to do what they had to do. And they stood a better chance, I think, of of surviving going forward because it was just terrible. And you could feel that they knew it wasn't going to work very well. But another thing that surprised me was that both times that I've been there, I have had the sensation of voices and it's both times it has been do not let this happen again this cannot happen again this was horrible don't do this it's ridiculous that it got to this point and I just feel like in today's day and time that was really interesting <laughs> you know I mm. I felt like it was a directive almost and maybe they're aware of current times and they're just trying to guide I, I'm really clueless on that but it was so clear it was overwhelming the whole Getty, the whole Gettysburg area is actually overwhelming there's so much there and it, it, you know. it, and you know it's just if, if you watch some of the you know, ghost hunting TV shows, you know, for a lot of mm. the investigations may happen um, near Pickett's uh, Charge. Uh, but, you know, you also have, um, it, it, you know, r- really disturbing scenes at yeah. some of the ends that were um, just makeshift hospitals. Did, did, did you encounter anything uh, on your uh, trip last weekend from one of the um, hotels in the area? What I what I encountered was just walking down the streets in broad daylight. Oh, really? Yes. It was interesting because I had gone to have breakfast at a place called the Lincoln Diner, and which was very retro and very cool. And I had investigated in that area last year. So... I was going to walk toward the roundabout, which is where the old structures and the old hotels. It's just lovely. And as I'm walking down the street, 
I'm, it's like you can hear people walking up beside you and there's no one there. And I am not given to fancy. I mean, you know, it is what it is or it's not. And it was very unusual. Blew me out of the water. (laughs) I didn't know what to think. I was getting out of someone's way saying, pardon me, you know, and there wasn't anybody there. So that was, that was an unusual moment in time. But like I said, that whole area was involved in that battle. The whole town was involved in that battle. And it's just really something else. You know, I went actually with my friend Tim Conwell to Devil's Den. He had never been to Gettysburg and, you know, he wanted to experience some of the area. So we went to Devil's Den, which is in smack dab in the middle of the the battlefield and is fairly infamous because people were trapped down in there as they were being fired on from the top of the hill. And they were trying to find anywhere they could to hide and it was not working for them. So it's, it's almost eerie because it was the people that were supposed to go in and, um, take care of the dead and injured afterwards did not I was told they did not do a good job of that so how do you disrespect people in that circumstance I just did not understand that or care for it at all but it was it was an unusual sensation in there Tim who is a sensitive said that he did not really feel anything there and I I was frankly mesmerized by the Milky Way. I don't get to see that much. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the peace and the calm is what was is what we were feeling. And I thought that was a beautiful thing because who could imagine there being peace and calm in the middle of the battlefields of Gettysburg? Yeah, that's in really intriguing response. You know, talking about you know, but but you have a, uh, you and Tim have a similar um, uh, reaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, but you, you know, you also get the. Uh, other people just talk of, uh, you know, a- after they r- run away and catch their breath on s- some of these shows, we're talking about, you know, I was, you know, uh, you know it was a, a frightening experience. Um, well, it, it could be. Uh, I mean, depending tra- on what you, what you invoked, you know, if you watch some of these television shows, first and foremost, they are for entertainment purposes right? and they are for drama. People harass um, the ghost adventures crew, but their host was a theater major and he has done quite well. He is 
dramatic. The only thing I worry about with him is that his show is so popular that young people want to emulate him. And I think there's a danger in that because you can't you can't confront something that you can't see and you don't know who you're dealing with. Even if you're using a, a spirit box or if you're, you know, using a video and you're seeing something or hearing something, I never use a Ouija board because I think that they are innately bad. And that's my opinion. I know they're plastic and cardboard, and I also know that intent carries a lot of weight. But, you know, it's dangerous to go and just yell and be aggressive and confrontational with something that you have no idea how it's going to react back. You know, if you went into one of these haunted houses and it did happen to have a spirit or something there and you went in like that, it would be the equivalent of somebody, you know, doing a home invasion on your home. And you would not react well to that, I think. So, like at the the battlefields, I think that these were people who died under extreme duress. They died under horrible conditions. They were amputees that, you know, bled out or they were, it was not a good death for any of them. And so you have somebody who's coming and trying to be intrusive and trying to be aggressive and in their face. And they probably should run panting down the road because I, I don't understand why people would still be there. I, but I have experienced enough to know that there is an opportunity for people to, for whatever reason, still be there. I don't know why or something to happen, but, um, I can't imagine being so cruel as to go up and harass those people if they're still there. I think that's mean. And I think that you should always be careful when you try to be mean to something you can't see. So, yeah, it, yeah. <coughs> excuse me. Kat, since you just brought that up, I, I always want wondered about um, what got me thinking was you know uh, being mean to something you can't see yeah yeah it's a little bit like the um, in the early 1840s Charles uh, Dickens wrote a Christmas Carol and you get like that interdimensional uh, Mm -hmm. situation going on and it's actually kind of like a yeah, sci-fi novella where you know, Scrooge and the different ghosts uh, are observers of uh, how people are uh, acting, and, uh, you know, with uh, him you know, being dead and stuff like that. But you know, they can't see uh, him. 
and right. you know, in, in the you know, twenty years later, the civil war happens, and you know you get you know a little bit of you know, what we've been discussing from your observations from last weekend. Seem like they are supporting. Dickens's interdimensional travel, and you know, and then we also get that you know appearing with the the uh, Bigfoot studies too. Uh, you, you know, is Fate Magazine covering, or has been covering that recently, or you know, do you have views on the interdimensional? Uh, Travel. It, 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 it's really well, fascinating it's really, subject. It is, and something that always amazes me is how timely the articles and fate are. And I do want to say that you know we lost our executive editor, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, recently, and it's just mm-hmm. not going to be the same without her. But she. She was a brilliant author in her own right, and she had a great eye for for good writers. It is amazing to me that they do stay just just on top of things, but it's because the writers, the contributors have that. You know they they have their finger on the pulse of their field, and you know this the new one that has come out. I'm actually going to be taking them with me to Phoenix to to hand out, but um, it's just it's just always up to date. You know, there's good stuff. There's good information. The the Writers are current researchers, so yes, they cover they cover all the things that are going on in the anomalous topic fields. And I think that the interdimensional, I don't know, Mark, that it's interdimensional, but I do know that that there is some form of interaction between wherever they are. And mm-hmm. and what is going on still? That that yeah, just I, amazes me. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm. I think I share in the same amazement. Maybe I'm not using the right term, but there just seems to be something there that we don't really understand. But, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, there have been authors who have discussed it, and it's not just a recent sci-fi authors or uh, theorists. It's there's a long tradition. I, I, it's I, 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 I'm not sure what it is either, but it's really cool. 
It is. Well, uh, and, and you know we're, um, you know we ha- have like seven and a half minutes or so left, um, but you know just a, a, another, uh, you know, quick subject, and we can get into uh, you, know, you plugging uh, your upcoming appearances. But uh, you know, one one of your uh, favorite topics that you like discussing on your shows is uh, some some of these um, ancient engineering topics. Yes. That uh, absolutely. How did how did they do this kind of uh, work and there's no evidence of uh, beating a stone to chisel out, you know, like Kumu Punku. Uh, what's your view on that? Cause I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm looking to you for an well, expert answer. Well, I'm married to a machinist. So full disclosure there, my, my husband is astounded with these H blocks. And, you know, when you see them on the television shows, they look massive, right? But they're not. They're relatively small. And they are precision machined. There is, you will never convince me that they did that with a rock and a chisel. And I know that there was amazing Amazing artistry then, but seriously. I mean, you can't even get a piece of paper between them. They're so mm-hmm. precise. And to him, that just blows his mind. <laughs> you know, It's like, how did they do that? I just can't imagine that. And it's, it's fascinating. And you know, you go over and you look at the the Great Pyramids, heck, the Mayan Pyramids, if you want to stay in Central America. But it's just, it's just amazing what these people mm-hmm. did so long ago and in such a time frame because I was speaking with an Egyptologist who frequents the television networks and he said that they had found a document that was, you know, pretty much a journal by one of the construction foremen on the the Grand Pyramid, the Great Pyramid, and they completed that project in half the time that it was believed to have, you know, until they found that document that they had believed that it took. I believe it was like 27 years versus 40-something years, but they still don't know how mm. they moved the stones. Or, you know, how they got them there. And apparently in that document, he does discuss a bit of that. So, you know, it's his journal. So how cool is that? That we have no idea how they do it. And I don't necessarily think that everything was ancient aliens bringing the technology to, you know, you know, Boom, there you go. But it's a fascinating thing when you you look back at some of the 
some of the art and some of the mm-hmm. the the glyphs. I mean, they're just amazing. And then you have the geoglyphs also in Peru where, you know, Van Donneken said that there were thousands of them the first time that he ever flew over there. You know, flew over it. And, and most of them view, are gone viewed now. viewed from the air. Yeah. They're only viewed from the air. You hmm. don't know what they are if you're not looking at them from the air. Yep. So that's a little freaky. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they but, weren't flying then, as far as we know. The ancient human imagination is uh, mind-boggling. Well, they didn't have MTV uh, and all that stuff then. <laughs> yeah. uh, they were, uh, maybe they we're, were creative. Yeah, uh, and we're uh, maybe on the more of a de-evolution pattern, but uh, we can save that for another time. But uh, <laughs> in the c- yes. c- couple minutes we have left, uh, uh, let's talk about your upcoming appearances at at these two big conferences. Well, I'm actually not speaking at the UFO Congress. I am covering the UFO Congress for Fate Mag and for WBHMDB. But I am speaking and um, introducing my new venture for the first time, August 24th, and that's going to be um, a conference up in North Alabama. I'm excited about that because I've never spoken with this group before, so it's going to be cool. And in October... I'm going to be doing another event for them, which is going to be significantly bigger. It's called CryptoCon, and it's going to be down on the Gulf Coast. Oh, yeah. It's going to be neat. Are are there uh, websites? Yes, and it's really fun. It's abnormal, A-B-N-O-R-M-A-L, abnormalalabama.com. And they're... I think they're a fairly new group. It is created by um, W.K. Graham, Kelsey Graham, who is a very interesting and diverse person in his own right. It's it's going to be interesting, and I'm, you know, we just announced our our new venture and you know, describing it and discussing what we would be doing yesterday. And we've already been approached for different conferences relevant to that too. So you never know what the future is going to hold. (laughs) Yeah. I was really surprised that, that the response was so quick, but I think people are just hungry for science to address Mm -hmm. the paranormal. And that's what we plan to do. Okay. Oh, um, I just had, had uh, one quick question from Seminole Lisa. Did did you know uh, Lorraine Warren? No, I was not fortunate enough to meet her. I am I am saddened by that. I know so many people who actually worked with her, and she was just brilliant and classy and a good researcher. And a good psychic. 
I I know different people had different opinions, but that's mine. And I think she was something special. Okay. So, uh, and uh, Kat, you you're on Sunday nights, eight to ten on Fate Mag Radio. Fate Mag Radio is um, you can hear us um, fatemag.net. Or you can hear us on WBHM-DB.com. Both of those have the same chat. So if you're on Fate or the network, you can hear us and chat with us. And I do monitor chat. We are also available on Spreaker. And if you look under WBHM-DB, then you will find the shows. And I also host Paranormal Experience Radio on Wednesday nights. From eight to ten Eastern on the on wbhm-db.com. Okay. Well, how, okay, how about uh, we wrap there and we'll resume sometime soon with more of your insights into well, the paranormal. I would love that. In, yeah. Uh, I enjoyed our discussion tonight, and it's just we just need to uh, temporarily temporarily stop and bring on our next guest. Absolutely, he's going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, just uh, and hang up with us, then tune in for the second hour. And just Absolutely. just enjoy. Steve's great. He is great. I'm looking so, forward to yeah. it. Okay. So the all right. We we will be in touch. All right. Well, you have a good night and enjoy that conversation with Steve Ward. That's going to be fun for you. He is neat. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And okay, I'll but, talk to you soon. Thank you, Kat. Thank you, Mark. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. And thanks to the listeners as well. Bye. Okay. Barbara, that was was a fun chat. Yeah, she's a neat person. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I almost hopped in to talk about my my ghost that I have with me at my house, but... I could could have. Okay. Well... There he is. There's Steve. Okay, how, how how are you today, Steve? Uh, good, doing good. Yeah. Okay, we need to do a little intro here. Yeah. Uh, All right. It's Steve and I have, have this mutual friend, and you know, uh, recently, as he Brent posted something, and Steve uh, made a comment, and like, so I think I. You know, uh, you know, from the Mothman you know, conference last year, and uh, and he said, "Yeah, that was me." And he said, "Oh, yeah, you're you're the guys like it." You know, you know, he spoke after after I got off stage. Said, "Yeah, that was that was me too." And you know, so it's like, oh, "Okay, uh, hey, uh, let's do." Uh, a show t- uh, Tuesday and 
get weird. Steve said, "Oh yeah, was, hey, I'm I'm ready any day of the week to get weird with you. So you know, let's do it." So uh, it gives you little backgrounds of how Nightlight Part Two gets guests. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're it, solid. We're solid professionals here. Yeah. You know that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Steve Ward is our second hour guest, and yeah, you may have heard him on his High Strangest Strangeness Factor radio show, or his reporting for Mac Maloney's Military X Files radio show, and he works with the uh, Roads Beyond the Known web series and Steve is going to be returning to the Mothman Festival uh this year too. So yeah, that's just uh yeah, a little bio of <laughs> uh you know, we've kind of known each other and we got sidetracked for a while and that now we're back together where we uh, should should be to uh continue the evening's conversation into the unusual. So, um, how, how's your day going, Steve? Uh, it's going pretty good. I did a uh, uh, Mac Maloney show earlier today. We always uh, uh, <clears throat> tape the show on Tuesdays. It's a podcast, so it mm-hmm. uh, it airs later. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes he pieces them together. We never know which segments are going to end up when and when they're going to show up. But uh, he did a uh, I, he did a best of of, sh- of show for me for my segments. Uh, I've been been with with Mac about three and a half years now, and uh, <clears throat> now I don't I don't ever listen to myself on, on the podcast. So a friend of mine listened to it. And, uh, <clears throat> see, Mac has a nickname for me: Switch Switchblade. Long story, but we, he started out calling me Stiletto Steve, and uh, you know he used to make a crack. Uh, when I would come on, he'd make some. I live east of Battle Creek, which of course is Serial City. So he would make a crack about, uh, you know, Tony the Tiger or whatever. So finally, I said, you know, after a few weeks, I said, Mac, you know, they're they're probably envisioning some guy in a Tony the Tiger T-shirt wearing stiletto high heels. So uh, he said, well, a, he's from Boston. A stiletto in Boston's a deadly weapon, right? So he had compassion. He renamed me, re-nicknamed me Switchblade, I guess because it's military X-Files. We're supposed to uh, have some kind of uh, association with weapons, even though no, nobody lets me anywhere around sharp objects anyway. So uh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, but but in the, what I was saying is in the old – there must have been a, a really old segments because he was calling me Stiletto Steve back then on that, on that special. Yeah, uh, yeah Mac – uh has a you know, a lot of information on all, all these uh military uh UFO encounters you know he, he he's a, a sharp guy on all those uh s- subjects uh, and he 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 uh published a book several years ago i believe uh, it has all the like Roman uh, era UFO sightings after you know some you know 
Julius Caesar's battle at Actium or whatever, you know. Right. That, like that. Yeah, he's. That yeah, was, he's, uh, he, that, he's he's written a lot of uh, a lot of fiction. His, his his famous series is the Wingman series, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but <clears throat> the book you're referring to is uh, UFOs in wartime. So he went through history and he talked about uh, you know sightings of UFOs from uh, from like you say the Roman soldiers to the so-called Foo Fighters of World War II, and you know other encounters uh, throughout the years with an emphasis on wartime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, you know, um, Mac presents some very compelling cases. Oh, and, but it, it, anyhow, uh, Steve, you uh, are going to be returning to Point Pleasant next month. Uh, we're going to yes. get together. Uh, Brent Range is going to be there. Uh, Brent's going to be coming up in what uh, on August 27th for our uh, one-year anniversary show. Oh, but, that's nice. Yeah, and uh, he's actually going to be returning. Uh, so, so that's uh, a you know, great, great way to celebrate the occasion but uh you know so all of us are going to get together uh next month was it the third weekend of september point pleasant yeah it's yeah it's always the third weekend of september and uh it's unfortunate because it it, uh you know there's so many uh, uh, events like this now that they're they're always are going to conflict somewhere but yeah brent uh uh, Brent will be uh, speaking about his uh, recent book he wrote on John Keel, and uh, it's uh, I've started the book and I he let me read uh, some of the PDF last year because Jeff Wamsley, who is the uh, the uh, the co-founder of the Mothman Festival and the curator of the Mothman Museum, uh, asked me to speak on John Keel, and so uh, Brent was kind enough to uh, and and also Rosemary, of course Rosemary Ellen Guyley, we just lost. Very recently, a, a great lady and a great name in the paranormal and this kind of research. Uh, <clears throat> he was, she was going to be publishing it for him, and she wrote the introduction. And so they both gave me permission to use whatever I, I wanted to from that uh, PDF, and it was really invaluable uh, to uh, in talking about John Keel. Because and yeah, before we talk a, you know, a little bit about your lecture. You're also going to be involved in another activity with the Mothman uh, Festival. Can can you tell us a little bit about what else you'll be doing? Well, we'll uh, let's see. As it goes right now, it looks like uh, well uh, on uh, on Saturday, I think it's 2 p.m. That's when Rosemary was going to be speaking. And so Jeff asked if uh, I would and some other people were going to have a very informal uh, talk and we're going to have uh, people remembering Rosemary, which would be nice uh, to do that because she was such an important part of the Mothman Festival and an important part of so many lives that <clears throat> have been involved with the Mothman Festival. Uh, my co-author, Joey and I, Joey Medea, we're, we're writing a book, uh, the title right now, 
will be uh, Parallels and Patterns, a new paradigm for the study of paranormal phenomena. We'll be speaking early on Sunday. And uh, now also, I think Jeff is going to have me introduce some of the speakers. But uh, for those that know the Mothman lore, they know that one of the first major sightings was in the infamous TNT area, which is just about six miles north of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And that was a uh, – they called it the TNT area because it was a, a munitions area where they built explosives for the war effort during World War II. And if you look at any of the old black-and-white photographs of that area, it was just a huge complex. Well, since then, it's, it's now it's the McClintic Wildlife Area, long abandoned. And even back in the middle 60s, uh, when the Mothman was seen, uh, it was a pretty rough-looking area. But uh, what we, we do on Saturday nights during the festival, we have uh, three, uh, basically, hay rides. And I do one of the tours through the TNT area. It's a cart pulled by a big tractor. And uh, it's a little, set up a little bit like a Halloween hay ride. But there is a guarantee of uh, harassment by the, uh, the dastardly men in black and a guaranteed flyover of the Mothman if, uh, if John and Tim are on their game. <laughs> okay, it's it, it's everyone's going to have a good time. No, no matter where you are during the festival, it's it's always fun. It, it is always fun, and it really has everything. It's uh, Saturday and Sunday. They have uh, speakers all day Saturday and Sunday at the the old State Theater, uh, and they have. Uh, where the Mothman statue sits is right next to the Mothman Museum, which, by the way, the museum is very well done, uh, just very well put together. And uh, there is uh, that that road, which is uh, crosses the main drag there, mm-hmm. is where most of the well vendors are set up, but mostly the, the speakers have their tables there. And then up and down Main Street, you have, uh, you know, uh, the obligatory uh, festival type, you know, T-shirts being sold, all kinds of food, and plenty of stuff for the kids. So the the, the area where, for the in quote serious researchers, is kind of separate. But uh, yeah, it just really does. And in the area, I mean, you've got this uh, great geography. You're right on the banks of the Ohio River. Uh, you're uh, across from Gallupless, Ohio, and uh, you know it's got everything. It's got the geography. It's got the mountains. It's got the history. So uh, it's uh, it's just a great place to be during the festival. Steve, how how did you get interested in these uh, unexplained phenomena, uh, you know, like the Mothman? Or, you, know, you know, what was your upbringing that uh, got got opened your mind to this kind of subject? Yeah, we, we all have kind of a beginning, don't we? And that's one of the questions mm-hmm. I ask on my show because I'm always curious. Because now some people are experiencers, and that's what pulled them in, but I'm not an experiencer. I had heard, you know, known a little bit about UFOs. I, I, a friend of mine introduced me to the great anthologies of Frank Edwards, uh, Stranger Than Science, Strangest of All, and he would write... Uh, stories about uh well some of the classic cases I, I learned about first through frank edwards like the flatwoods monster and the kelly hopkinsville goblins in kentucky 
uh, I even learned about uh, Bigfoots, even before they were calling them Bigfoot, I think. Uh, there was a chapter in one of his books called The Monster Apes of Oregon, which uh, was pretty exciting. But uh, that, I think, probably stirred the interest a bit. But then in, uh, in March of 1966, there was a huge UFO flap in Michigan. And I know it wasn't just in Michigan. It was several other places. And uh, there were very credible sightings by police officers and so forth. And this was essentially in my backyard. I mean, I grew up just north of Detroit. And these were hitting places like uh, Ann Arbor and, and Ypsilanti and uh, Dexter and, and Hillsdale and so forth. And that uh, this will mark it in people's minds, whether they lived through it or read about it. Uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who, of course, is the subject of a TV show recently called Project Blue Book, which mm-hmm. I, I detest, by the way, but that's just me. Uh, he was still attached to Project Blue Book, which was kind of, I, in my opinion, a debunking organ and a public relations gambit for the Air Force. Well, he was an astronomer from Northwestern University. And uh, he had, uh, at that time period, he had been, been changing his thinking. He was a skeptic and he was a debunker. But uh, he did say that he thought some of the sightings in Michigan, some, might be swamp gas. And that's all the press had to hear because then everything was swamp gas. But it was great. I mean, this is the, the invading alien hordes were landing in my backyard just about. <laughs> but the, the big event was that following November, that's the, one of the first major sightings of the Mothman. This one was where he chased the two couples down Route 62 out of the TNT area into Point Pleasant. And uh, that came across the wire services. That went all over the world. So I think uh, that, were, that was the beginnings. And, uh, you know, of course, I, I sought out, uh, like uh, so many of us did, uh, any books we could find which were pretty scarce in the local library. And there weren't many programs at that time on the subject. But that's pretty much what sparked it, I think. Okay. And, you know, since, you know, we're talking about, you know, what – events got you uh, going down this path of exploration. Um, You you, uh, brought up um, that, that some of John Keel's uh, books had an influence on you as well as Jacques Vallée. Uh, yeah, how did uh, the, their writings impact you? Yeah, it was it was it was major. Um, I started out as a guy, as you know, there's a lot of people like John Keel. John Keel, of course, the author of the Mothman Prophecies. Uh, Jacques Vallée author of many books, uh, including Passport to Magonia and, and several other ones. Uh, you know, they, a lot of people had sort of a, I wouldn't call it a learning curve, but they start out thinking these things are extraterrestrial nuts and bolts craft, and then something else happens, something, uh, things don't quite add up. And uh, I was pretty happy with that paradigm. I mean, I was reading books by uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen, now, they were the heads of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. And, uh, of course, uh, 
Donald Kehoe was the head of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. It's interesting because Kehoe, and Kehoe was pretty much uh, friends with Frank Edwards, who uh, wrote those anthologies of who was actually a, uh, a broad news broadcaster and a journalist. Uh, Kehoe was happy all day long with uh, reporting on lights in the sky, but he got very uncomfortable when people started talking about even, not even abductions, but the Lorenzans were reporting about these landings and people seeing these little creatures, you know, land, uh, next to the, the craft or whatever. That's what, back to Dr. Hynek, he's the first one to come up with the categories, the close encounter categories. Close encounter of the first kind is pretty much a sighting of a, a UFO in, in close proximity. The second kind is where the craft or whatever it is leaves burn marks, uh, tripod marks, some kind of physical evidence. And third kind is seeing one of these entities nearby. And so, uh, so that was uh, that was kind of the state at the time. Keel didn't want Kehoe. Kehoe did not want to talk about that. And I was reading John Keel at, at times, and Keel was pretty much in the ET camp early on. But he had seen a couple of these things. He saw one as a seven-year-old kid in about 1937, and he saw another one when he was in Egypt near one of the Great Pyramids. So, uh, but Keel Keel came. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, – originally it was called Strange Creatures from Time and Space, which has since been retitled to, I think, the, the Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings. And he talks about all kinds of entities and creatures and so forth, but he first proposed the idea of window areas. And these are areas where a lot of different types of paranormal phenomena all seem to come together, like cryptids and strange lights in the sky. He was trying to account for the fact that these things seem to just kind of show up out of nowhere, scare the heck out of people, leave footprints and so forth and physical evidence, and then they disappear. But the book that really, really threw me for a loop when I came kicking and screaming was his UFOs Operation Trojan Horse. And this was written before the Mothman Prophecies, which focused on the events in Point Pleasant, West Virginia in the mid-60s. In Trojan Horse, he demonstrates that the uh, you know all paranormal phenomena seems to be interconnected, and uh, it, there's a lot lot to say about that. But uh, he he began to think that uh, some of the things people were seeing, he, he began to think. Now his thinking wasn't static, and it did change, but he thought that perhaps the only real objective uh, thing that was objectively real about these experiences were the strange lights in the sky. And that when people were seeing the cryptid or a craft or whatever, that it was perhaps some kind of projection or transmogrification, I love that word, of energy. He thought that they, it wasn't that important that the craft, you know, how many windows it had or if it had a tripod. It was, he wanted to seek out the cosmic mechanism behind that. And just, uh, just to give you a little more on that, he used a term called, instead of extraterrestrial, because he began to believe that these things were a natural condition of the planet. Now, in later years, he did leave the door open for E.T., but uh, he believed that, uh, uh, that these things were uh, – well, he used the term ultra-terrestrial, like I said, and uh, uh, he borrowed the term from Ivan Sanderson. Ivan Sanderson was the great British naturalist living in New Jersey that uh, I mean, he even had a, a show on animals on NBC years ago. Sanderson is probably best known for writing 
The Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life, and he wrote other really great books on UFOs. So that was the term. Keel used the term ultra-terrestrial as kind of a literary device, he said, but also to suggest that we probably need to be looking inward or right here in our, in our, in our own uh, backyard rather than off-planet to explain some of these things. And then Jacques, I barely recovered from reading Trojan Horse. And then I read Jacques Vallée. You know what it's like. You know, you go along, you're very happy with your comfortable, comfortable paradigm, little, uh, little aliens jumping out of spaceships, uh, collecting soil samples. And then Vallée made the connection between uh, various traditions and folklore and modern day UFO experiences. So, yeah, those two guys, those two books early on really really changed my thinking it, 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 since um yeah you know, part of this second hour is a little bit of a homage to John Keel and laying the foundations for uh Brent's appearance with us in a uh, three weeks or so um you, know, you, you were just talking about, uh, you know, Keel changed his opinions, uh, uh, you know, through, throughout his uh, writing. I, I was wondering, does a researcher in the paranormal field who may be vacillating some uh, said changing his opinion does that you know weaken his standing or do you find like it makes him a more uh, powerful uh, observer that he uh, adapted his views with more information that became available over time. Uh, you know, how does that impact his legacy? Well, that's I think you you hit it on the head. You see, my my idea is that you you know if I had uh, stayed with my comfortable paradigm, <clears throat> I uh, I interviewed a lady last year uh, who had a close encounter experience an abduction. And I applied some of the same questions that John Keel did. But uh, if I had been frozen in the 60s, I never would have, you know, uh, gone further and asked those kinds of questions. So what I tell what I believe is that one, if you follow the reports and the experiences, what people tell you, that you're going to come in, run into things sometimes that don't fit a comfortable, uh, I keep using the word paradigm, but uh, we all we all have, you know, ideas of what these things are. And I think even to some degree, we have kind of our favorite theories, you know, that we would like it to be. Uh, but we have to watch that. So I think that, yes, you have to. Uh, I mean, I have been I have gone back and forth. There was a time when I was with uh, John Keel early on. And I completely rejected the ET hypothesis. I thought we were dealing with something like these things we were seeing were more like phantasms, like a sort of a planetary poltergeist, uh, you know, paraphysical, leaving 
you know, having actually having physical effect within our environment. But I've tempered that a bit. I, I also think that that, well, number one, there's very few things I can say in an absolute sense. And I will say in an ab- absolutely that there is more than one answer to all these things. There's not just one. And so, yes, uh, I, I think you're you're far more powerful if you examine the evidence, listen to the people. Of course, we always have to assess, you know, their credibility. But what I look at my my thing, and this is, you know, started with John Keel and Jacques Vallée, is I, I'm interested in patterns, in parallels, in things in between. Uh, I'm interested in these high strangeness areas, or people call them portals or vortexes. Uh, you know, Stan Gordon studied that area in, in Pennsylvania in 73, 74, where people were seeing Bigfoot and UFOs, and they were having men in black experiences. Of course, Point Pleasant, it wasn't just Mothman. It was uh, UFOs, men in black. Uh, I guess there were some animal mutilations in the area. There was also some uh, Bigfoot-like mm-hmm. creature being seen. And, uh, so, and, and also uh, in Brent's book, by the way, which I've started reading, he talks about a Swedish researcher that came to Point Pleasant when all this thing was going on, all these things were going on. He interviewed several of the original Mothman witnesses. I've been able to talk to about six of them. And uh, he said that virtually everyone, after their experience of seeing the Mothman, by the way, they were describing a creature that was about seven feet tall, uh, red glowing eyes, maybe a 10-foot wingspan, uh, roughly man-like. But he said that all these people were experiencing poltergeist phenomena when they got home. So, uh, you know, when we, when we if we start to see patterns, both from the past to the present, to uh, to what we consider different types of paranormal phenomena, then I think we should take notice. And it really, you know, it really helps to go back in time to examine these cases because people didn't know much at all about the stuff. We weren't uh, saturated with TV shows and so forth. Although there's a lot of people don't know a lot of the, oh, what I want to say. Some of the, there's some, some areas still that are very unknown, people that don't know about. They'd have to really read certain parts, of, certain types of literature to find out. So, yeah, you, you have to. I have this huge, this middle ground of my suspend judgment file. There's a, some things I can reject out of hand, some things I accept, you know, readily. But so many things are in kind of a state of flux because we really don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what we learned from Cat in the first hour. And you're you're giving us a continuing education of the need to research. It it, it changes over time, and you know, it, and I asked a question about you know, like vacillating. Um, on uh, conclusions of theories, because uh, you know one of my favorite authors, uh, Dr. William 
Webb who wrote uh, a lot of books on you know, the excavations of uh, mounds. Uh, he you know, made some observations you know, uh, early on. Uh, he, he changed his opinions and like you know, 50 years later, you know, today's archaeologists, you know, you know, kind of point that out as, you know, he, he was a flawed researcher. Well, uh, I just like more. It, it, it's just after excavating, say, you know, 40 more uh, mounds since he wrote, you know, the original. It made the you know, his original proclamation, and it's like yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe we ought to. I I I need to reevaluate that. I'm doing what I can to make uh, accurate reports to the public. I I want them to understand, but I I may have made a mistake. I and it it just seems like in this field. Uh, where in the 60s and 70s, you know, there might not have been a lot of information for Kiel to base his work on, but he, he's still doing pioneering work, and you and Brent and so many other people just keep going back to uh, what John Keel said. And it's like, I, you know, we're kind of, you know, Finding evidence that is um, being uh, that supports his theories, and even in the Mothman uh, prophecies book, uh, Keel does uh, talk about um, the UFO activity in the Ohio Valley uh, was. Uh, centered around, uh, I said, uh, they show a penchant for the ancient Indian mounds. Yes, and he, uh, he, they're, they're there. Yes, and he uh, he 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 was uh, said something very interesting. He he mused, what came first? Did the people build the mounds and then their worship of the mounds create, you know, thought forms or tulpas or whatever, or were the lights there first? And did they, you know? And uh, trigger them to build these incredible mounds, and uh, very interesting because you know Linda Godfrey, who has done great research into the Dogman uh, phenomena, these upright canids that people are seeing, and she's written several books on it. She, uh, she of course, she hails from Wisconsin, and she originally started talking about the sightings around Bray Road, which are just east of Elkhorn, and. Uh, she one one time was sort of by accident. She had a she had had uh, made a map of the of the sightings, the clusters of dogmen, so to speak. And she noticed I forget the reference book, but there's a, a book of, of Wisconsin mounds, and this is kind of in southeastern Wisconsin. She found an area with uh, mostly the I think panther effigies and the water spirit effigies which were just virtually identical when she overlaid a, a map of the dogman sightings. So it's, it's very much like these things, these whatever they are, 
And I'm, I'm not convinced they're flesh and blood because they're very elusive. They're almost like apparitions sometimes. But uh, there seems to be a connection there. And just one other thing which uh, occurs to me, uh, Dr. Greg Little, and he's written several great books. I can't mm-hmm. – I think it's called the – I can't remember now. Oh, Barbara, uh, uh, we need you to answer this question about the title of Greg's book. It's, what, it's, it's one of his first ones, uh, way back. It was after the archetype experience, but uh, it had to do with mounds and so forth. But, uh, Which book? But oh, was it the Atlantis one? No. Oh, the Atlantis uh, uh, Oh, that's uh, a great book. And it, it people, people uh, it, something about people and the circle there are, are in the title. It's a long title. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, he, he recounts a, a, an incident of a, of a man who was uh, driving near the, that incredible circuit mound in Ohio. And he gets, it's in November, and he just gets this urge to, like, like so many people get urges to go to a certain spot, and they're abducted or whatever. That, that goes back in history, too, because people that had encounters with the fairies, they called that being pixie-led. So it, but anyway, he has this urge to go to the Serpent Mound. It's uh, off-season, but he goes there anyway, and there's, there's some kind of incredible energy going on. He's, he sees these leaves are kind of... Uh, uh, it's like they're being pulled up o- on top of the mound, and it's almost like a whirlwind. And he's really freaked out at first, and then he thinks, my God, if I could only get my camera. And, of course, if anybody knows the logistics of the Serpent Mound, the, the parking lot isn't real close by. And, of course, by the time he got back, it was all done. But his, for what it's worth, his distinct feeling was that the ancients built this mound in that area because there was something inherent in that area, the energy was already there. Oh, there, so, yeah, there's yeah the it's inside a meteorite crater. Right. Yeah, uh, there, yeah there's and yeah there also uh, reports of um, crop circles. Uh, Near the serpent mound. Oh, oh yes, there was uh, some years ago. We talked uh, uh, a few years ago. We talked to the guy that was behind the desk, and he he told us about it. That's a whole other area that's that's fascinating. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, many of them are man-made, but boy, if you go back in in history, there were things they used to call uh, witch circles or devil circles, and uh, sometimes they would actually see them being created before their eyes. Uh, and they, you know how you've heard that uh, people that go into crop circles, uh, their cameras will malfunction, their mm-hmm. EMF meters will burn out, or, or a circuit board, will, or even people's energies feel drained. Whether if you go back, and there was one in 1927 in England where the the, uh, the guy had seen these before. Well, he went into the circle. His dog wouldn't follow him. He stuck his knife in the soil. It magnetized the blade. And his compass would only point toward that circle. So some of these things do seem to have a unexplained or paranormal, if you will, uh, connection. Uh, although in, in what was it, uh, 2003, I read a book by uh, Dr. Simeon Hine called uh, Opening Minds. And he detailed how there are a lot of people that would get together, meditate, and uh, and form, you know, create these magnificent crop circle designs. Well, even some of those are interesting because sometimes some of those people that have been out there under cover of darkness will see these little light balls show up 
and sometimes it's freaked them out. Like, what the heck is that? You know, what's going on there? Almost as if to say, you know, that energy or whatever it is, you know, this is our job. What are you doing making crop circles when we do this? Uh, some other people think that the, the action, the meditation, the creation of the form somehow connects with Mother Earth and prevents the, uh, uh, creates the phenomena. And then you have situations where uh, people have, uh, have videotaped uh, these little light balls anywhere from the size of a uh, tennis ball to a basketball over some of these crop formations that just seem to be floating around. It's quite a mystery, even though many of them are man-made. It, 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 Steve, you, uh, uh, you know, we've been talking about uh, a lot of in the mysteries around uh, Point Pleasant. Uh, you, you, know, you did bring up uh, Dogman. You got the Bray Road uh, case, um, but. It, you're doing some of your investigations from Michigan. Um, we have a number of guests who are with us for one reason or another. We find out they're from Michigan, too. Barbara has her... UFO story from Michigan. Uh, uh, what's what's in the water in Michigan? Uh, well, if it's Flint, Michigan, you don't want to drink it. Uh, <laughs> Heard the story. It's funny because uh, Bill Konkoleski is the head of uh, Michigan MUFON. And for those that may not know, MUFON is the Mutual UFO Network. Uh, uh, Bill does a great job of running the Michigan branch. And we used to have our meetings out there in Flint. So it was uh, quite a few running jokes about the water situation out there, which I'm still not sure that they have uh, under control. So maybe maybe we can blame Flint. Okay. Yeah. There's. Yeah. It it, it just seems like uh, you know we have several guests who it just turns out that they're from Michigan, Lawn Krieger and his ancient garden beds in the Michigan copper trade and Ron Radmacher. Now you, uh, you know, you get, it, it, it seems, seems like there's just a lot of interesting things going on in Michigan. Uh, ancient, uh, stories, you know, some, some, some newer ones with the, uh, you know, say the Ken Ross, uh, oh yeah, uh, UFO, um, you know, case study. Uh, you know, just hearing a little bit of about everything up there. Um, you know, I've been talking with um, Ron. Um, he, he's you know, made some comments about you know the Kinross uh, case, but yeah, you know, there's also yeah the inevitable uh, swamp gas cover up. Can, you know, can, can you tell us a little bit more about how uh, the, the the swamp gas is 
being used oh, yeah. to di- divert our attention from these well, yeah. events. Yeah, definitely. Uh, by the way, that book I was trying to remember by Dr. Gregory Little is called People of the Web. It's one you have to buy uh, from third-party sellers, but it's a fascinating book. Yes, the uh, actually Heineck was uh, he goofed up. He was uh, Heineck and Dr. Jacques Vallée were colleagues, and uh, Vallée came over from France in uh, 1960, and he was a computer scientist, mathematician. Uh, he uh, and he was another one of these guys that originally thought that UFOs were ET. Wrote some fascinating books. Uh, uh, Challenge to Science, which uh, documents a UFO way of, of landings in France in the middle 50s. Uh, so Valet uh, was a little bit disappointed that uh, that uh, uh, Heineck kind of blew it. But what Heineck was actually saying is he thought that some of the sightings could be explained as swamp gas, most particularly the Hillsdale sightings, Hillsdale, Michigan. There was a, a, a all-girls school at the time, a college that uh, where they saw it. Now, I don't think that it was swamp gas, but you know it was just the, the press ran with it. But you know, ten years later, by that time, uh, Ke- uh, uh, as Keel said, Dr. Heineck became one of the good guys. He uh, left Project Blue, Blue Book, thank God, and he started the Center for UFO Studies in Evanston, Illinois. And uh, he spoke at the 1976 MUFON Symposium, which I was able to attend because uh, it was actually close enough to where I lived. And uh, that was a great, I mean, you know, for, for me, I, I, I just hadn't uh, been exposed to anything like that. Dr. Heineck was there. Uh, Ray Stanford was there who investigated the Socorro, New Mexico uh, landing. Um, Jacques Vallée was actually supposed to be there, but he wasn't able to make it. But uh, Dr. Heineck had a talk that was called Swamp Gas Plus 10 and Counting. And so he recounted those days. I actually have that recording that I've put on CD. But, uh, yeah, he was, uh, you know, by that time he had uh, developed a serious investigation group. Uh, There was another guy named there uh, called, uh, let's see, Dr. Dr. Webb, I can't think of what his first name was. He wrote a book called 1973, Year of the Humanoid, because there were a whole wave of landings with uh, humanoid encounters that year. So uh, it was, uh, it's just that the, the, it wasn't it's too much a cover up really as more the, the press just, you know, the press is one dimensional and just latches onto something. But, uh, but Heineck was very, uh, very engaging and, he showed us uh, some of the uh, cartoons of the day, <laughs> and there's one that uh, I, I wish I could 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 project it. But uh, you see a landed saucer, and you see these little green men with these very powerful ray guns, and they accost a human on the street, and they say, "Take us to the one that called us swamp gas." So he had he had several cartoons. He was having a good time because it was for him. It was sort of his. Uh, I don't know, uh, <clears throat> sort of making up for past mistakes or, or past uh, mis- misunderstandings and that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so he was uh, – yeah, and, and that about that time, too, he wrote the book The UFO Experience, which uh, first talked about these, uh, these first three close encounter categories. So I think that uh, – of course, swamp gas survives to this day as a running joke. Yes. And uh, – and you know we'll never we'll never lose the marsh gas or the swamp gas. 
So, it, it, okay, so, uh, you know, with, with the uh, remaining time, uh, you know, we don't need to focus on swamp gas. You know, keep, keep talking about the more concrete evidence. And, you know, um, you know if we look at the geography of Mason County, uh, do, do you think that it could support a uh, breeding pair of mothmen. I, I, I don't know. You see, the, the when people ask me what was the mothman, now John Keel didn't know. I mean, he'd studied this for years. He'd been John Keel thought it was just going to be a big bird of some kind, and he. He joked in the Mothman prophecies that he he oiled up his monster traps and headed off to Point Pleasant. But the thing is, what I tell people is the Mothman was a paradox. Uh, again, it was about seven feet tall, uh, grayish, very – sometimes people said black, uh, maybe a 10-foot wingspan. Uh, so there were about over 100 people who reported this thing fairly consistently, although there's always aberrations. Uh, Tom Urey saw something more like a thunderbird. He did not see the Mothman per se. And uh, the thing is, it didn't act like a biological creature. Uh, some said that uh, a 10-foot wingspan wouldn't be wide enough to uplift a, a, a creature that tall or a, a being that tall. The eyes did seem to generate its own light. People talked about that. It wasn't, wasn't merely eye shine. Uh, it wouldn't always flap its wings. It would, it would, the wings would, would move out a little bit and it would take off straight like a helicopter. Uh, John Keel, now this, none of this was printed in, in the, the books or his articles, which are plentiful, by the way. I encourage people to, uh, to check out John Keel and his writings on uh, Amazon. Uh, but uh, it, it turned out that uh, he, he had a few uh, uh, people tell him that when it was close, they thought they could hear something like a motor or some kind of a humming. Now, you know, this just uh, just throws a wrench in the works. Now, if it was some kind of a uh, drone, a highly advanced drone that people they were messing with us back in the 60s, why the heck did people suddenly encounter paranormal phenomena, poltergeist phenomena, when they got home? Uh, there was a uh, – Keel uh, talks about a uh, – I'm trying to remember. He was a judge, I think. He was a very prominent person, and he, he wasn't able to name him. But he saw this thing. He went out on his front porch and saw this thing standing in his yard. Ten or 15 minutes later, he came out of a trance, and then it took off. Uh, so it was a mass of contradictions. And frankly, you know, when you try and look at the entire scope of the of the Mothman experience, you know, Brent Rains uh, had a, uh, he never met John Keel, but he had a long relationship, uh, a correspondence and on the phone. And uh, Keel told uh, Brent Rains that all the things that happened in Point Pleasant, it would have taken six books to cover everything. And, uh, and as it was, the Mothman prophecies was cut in half. The editors chopped out half of it. And uh, Keel was able to salvage some of that in his follow-up book called The Eighth Tower. So we just have a, a fraction of what happened there. But to, to get back to your original question, uh, 
I, I, I tend not to think this was just some kind of undiscovered cryptid. Uh, I, I don't I don't know what the heck it was. It just uh, it, it's a paradox. It's a mass of contradictions. Okay, and um, you have to check out that Ace Tower. I, I didn't realize that. Um, well, let me just before you go on. There's, there's a couple sure. other other books that have been published now. Doug Skinner was a good friend of Keel's for a long time. Doug Skinner runs a website called JohnKeel.com. He has uh, a couple of my friends helped him salvage a bunch of John stuff when he died, and Doug Skinner has put all kinds of stuff on this website. Uh, you know, stuff from when he was a kid and just everything. And there have been two books that are published by New Saucerian where they've taken some of that stuff from that website. And they're, a lot of it are Keel's notes. There's they're, they're some of the writings that became the Mothman prophecies later. So you've got books, uh, the, uh, oh, come on now, the, the, big, uh, the Big Breakthrough and The Big Blackout which are, will expand your knowledge of the Mothman prophecies. It'll, it'll add to it, as well as the Eighth Tower. Hmm. Okay, cool. Um, Aubrey, do you, uh, do you think we'll uh, be going to johnkeel.com to try to get some more guests? I would say uh, absolutely we will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great resource. Uh, I, I have never asked Doug Skinner to be on, but he would be a, you know, I'll have to tell you, you know, John Keel. I know we're running out of time, but John Keel had a great sense of humor. And uh, at uh, one time when uh, now Doug Skinner brought one of his books for, for John to sign, but it was a used one. He didn't buy a new one. So it's all battered and beaten. And so John wrote in the sleeve of the book, he said, to my friend John Skinner who's too cheap to buy a new copy of my book. <laughs> okay. That's a good story. I like that one. But uh, <clears throat> Keel is, oh, and a couple other things, uh, you know, for a while there, and I won't get into it, but for a while Keel was being forgotten. Uh, when uh, the, he was uh, had a little bit of a resurgence when the movie The Mothman Prophecies came out in what was it t- 2003 I think. Yeah, that's about right. And uh, but uh, his uh, the only thing that had been, been republished was I think uh, The Mothman Prophecies a lot of stuff and his articles were lost at the time. I mean all the stuff great stuff he he had written in these magazines but now they've been resurrected. But people like uh, Nick Redfern and Black right. Diary. He talks about in one of his chapters, he says, John Keel was ahead of his time. And wherever he is now, he probably still is. Rosemary Ellen Guiley in the foreword to Brent Rain's book on John Keel said, John, you know, saw the interconnectedness between all paranormal phenomena. And even, you know who David Politis is, of course, the missing 411 guy. Well, Mm -hmm. I saw him at uh, an event in uh, the Pittsburgh area, and he was talking to Stan Gordon. So we're all standing around listening to this. And at one point, David Politis stopped and he said, John Keel, you know, he was uh, way ahead of his time. And I went, yes, finally, you know, he's he's uh, he's come back into vogue. People that had, didn't know anything about him now know about him. We've got Brett Rain's book come, uh, has been out. And so uh, it's just it just does my heart good because, you know, I can't get through 
a radio show or a conversation about the paranormal without referencing John Keel or something that he discovered. Yeah, and, and it's nice that you know you had these anecdotes, you know, you know, the, like how he signs uh, your friend's uh, uh, book. Uh, yeah, it, it's yeah, you know, there's just those little things like that. Yeah, you know, it just gives me, you know, Barbara, you know, the the uh, you know, listeners, and you know, the human billboard, and Seminole Lisa, and all the other. Uh, people are here each week. Yeah, you know, just that. Yeah, you know, just that uh, li- little personal touch about uh, 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 just say an author that you know, it gives us a new I- insight into him or her. Uh, it's, it's a great story. Well, I guess uh, you know I, I was on uh, Brent's show with Rosemary Ellen Guiley last year. And uh, she knew him uh, through the 90s. And uh, I can't think of any other ones at the moment, but there's uh, he had quite a sense of humor. He's very kind of mischievous. And uh, he uh, uh, he just was really uh, an amazing individual. Okay. And Steve, uh, we're, we're down to uh, three minutes. Um, you know, we need to tell everyone about the Mothman uh, uh, conference or festival and about your shows. Okay. Uh, uh, the Mothman uh, Festival is the third weekend in September. You'll see me uh, uh, around there doing one thing or another. You Make sure you get on that hay ride. That's the only thing that costs a few bucks, so check it out. Uh, I'll be going to the Exeter, New Hampshire festival with the Mac Maloney crew uh, over Labor Day. Uh, I will be uh, at the Van Meter Visitor Festival in Van Meter, Iowa, west of Des Moines, the last weekend of September, about another winged creature. Uh, I'm on Mac Maloney's Military X-Files as a correspondent every week. I do the High Strangeness Factor every other week on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. And I'll be uh, speaking in Toledo as well, October 12th, uh, the Bigfoot Paranormal event. I forget the exact name. But anyway, I, uh, I think that pretty much covers it. And uh, listen, I really uh, appreciate you guys having me on your show tonight. Yeah, Steve, uh, we have a lot of fun, and we're going to have to uh, do it again, Do you know, get get some kind of round table together with you know, some other people and it just uh, keep, keep the conversation moving ahead about what what we need to know about the unexplained. Well, there's, there's no end to it, and it's uh, also endlessly fascinating. It really is. And, uh, you know, uh, I just want to thank uh, you and Kat for being great guests. Uh, Barbara, you want to wrap it up? We have a show Sunday, and we'll be back uh, next Monday and Tuesday of next week as well. Uh, Barbara, you have any Yeah, I just want to to thank you and and your guests. It was a fabulous show, and I'm sure that everyone will enjoy it in archive because we get tons of people there. And as you said, we've got two shows next week. And um, three, we're looking three, three shows next week. 
What? Don't book o- any more. Only three. <laughs> only three. <laughs> so good night. Good night to both of you and good night to those listening. Thanks for joining us. We've had a great time. Hope you have too. Tune in next week. <laughs>